I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you Dr. Leah DiBello is the CEO, President, and Director of Research of WTRI, Workplace Technology Research Incorporated. She has a PhD in Cognitive Psychology and has been a pioneer in understanding and speeding up learning in the workplace. DiBello is best known for the development of a particular kind of activity-based strategic rehearsal approach that has been shown to greatly accelerate learning through cognitive reorganization. Studies of over 7,000 people at all levels exposed to Dr. DeBello's methods indicate that learning was accelerated by several months in all cases. Dr. DeBello has been the recipient of 17 basic research funding awards from the National Science Foundation, NASA, and the Russell Sage Foundation. On this episode, they uncover how anyone can accelerate their learning, what big mistakes leaders make when trying to improve, and so much more. For the high performers looking to improve their leadership abilities, listen up and get ready to discover the path to becoming a better version of yourself. Let's face it, the best leaders, they're always on the hunt for insights, wisdom, looking for ways to get better, ways to make other people better. They see the gap between who they are and who they could be. For three decades, thousands of the world's most elite leaders have turned to admired leadership for insights, for the behaviors and routines of true leadership excellence, how to make decisions, build relationships, how to motivate and inspire. Now, for the first time, these rare insights are available online. Admired Leadership has this incredible video platform that focuses on 10 areas that are critical for all leaders. In each video module, you'll learn the 10 specific behaviors of the very best leaders. I've had the pleasure of taking this course, and it is hands down the best course I have ever taken on leadership. If you're looking to better yourself or raise up the team or company you're working with, then you have to check out Admired Leadership. I'm also excited about the new Admired Leadership Field Notes email. This is a daily email from the front lines of leadership. It's free, and even better, when you sign up, you'll get a special 16-page guide to motivation and inspiration that will change the way you lead. So you need to ask yourself the question, are you ready to become an even better leader? If so, find out more at admiredleadership.com. This podcast is all about uncovering the lessons and wisdom high performers are using to better their life, and one of the most important elements of high performance is your sleep. That's why I'm thrilled to tell you about 8Sleep. 8Sleep is revolutionizing what a great night of sleep means. The Pod Pro by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market. And what it does is the Pod Pro has dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking so you know the exact amount and quality of the sleep you're getting. It comes in the form of both a mattress or a cover you can put on your existing mattress. Get the pod and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees for those people who like a nice chilly room or mattress and as hot as 110 degrees. I'm one of the fans of the cooler mattress, so this is perfect for me. The temperature of the Pod Pro will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment for you. So what's the result of all this? Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get an overall more restful night of sleep. 
The Pod Pro by 8 Sleep is so popular as garnered the attention from CEOs, pro athletes, and overall high performers like yourself. Go to 8sleep.com forward slash Sean to check out the Pod Pro and save $150 at checkoff. That's 8sleep.com forward slash Sean. Leah, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing really well. And I just want to dive right into this. I, I know you love rapid iteration and accelerated learning. So I'm just really intrigued. Is, is there a mindset of yours that if you could just pass on to anyone early in their career, just starting off, you think would just have considerable positive benefits for them throughout the rest of their career? Um, I guess um, assume that you that you are, are always missing something. <laughs> That, that whatever you're looking at, whatever you've concluded, that you've missed something and that you should start looking for it. Why that mindset? Why did, why did that get so ingrained in you? And, and why have you found the value in that? Because it's always led me to a better idea. And if you can get comfortable with that, it, could, it, it can actually be a lot of fun. Oh, well, Leah, you're, you're hitting on one of those, like the uncomfortable nature of that, right? Is, yeah. is that something you're born with or, or can you train that up? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I do, I do know for a fact that you can train it up because that's what we do. And that's why we gamify accelerated learning. The way we do it is we gamify that exploration and that iterative trial and error. And I think it's part of our DNA. If you look at children and how children play when nobody's watching them, they try things, they fail, they try it again. And they're very attracted to novelty. That's why games are fun. Because things that you think will work don't work and you get to try again. And it's it's the basis of humor, the unexpected. And it's what, even for children, even for babies, it's what's funny. Something that you didn't expect. And if you can get that back and always look for that unexpected and be comfortable with it, um, it it makes learning fun and it makes you a more adaptive human being. You mentioned children. I'm wondering, is there a reoccurring theme that, that even started when you were a younger child that has just been consistent throughout your life? Um, you know, I tell this story and people don't believe me, but my first memory is actually sitting on a blanket in front of my house. I wasn't walking or talking yet. And I remember watching cars go by. And on the street, you know, they're just blurry objects. And I remember thinking, looking at the car in the parked in the driveway of our house and thinking that the car, the blurry objects going by were somehow the same and different than the car in our driveway that we get into. And I remember thinking so hard about that and trying to figure it out. I was probably, you know, three or four months old. And I became obsessed with that idea for a long time. And I'll never forget it. And, um, you know, at that age, you don't even have object permanence, right? You're not even capable of seeing that a car that's moving and a car that's not moving are the same thing. Um, And yet I was obsessed with some tangential similarity and trying to reconcile it in my mind. So I do think that that was the seeds to everything that I do. What's the narrative been like in your head 
throughout your whole life. I, I, I'm just wondering, like, such an experience like that, it seems kind of obviously uncommon, and most people aren't experiencing that. Do you feel like you've been experiencing and seeing the world slightly different than most? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think we all are, are, make, are constructing a simulation of the world in our heads. We all live in a simulation mm-hmm. of our own creation. And what I, if I'm different than other people, I'm curious about the simulations in other people's heads. And I'm curious about how we co-construct simulations that we share. You mentioned, to ex- that, yeah, to the extent that we have a, a culture of practice between us, we share a co-constructed, shared understanding. It's really a shared simulation in our heads of the world. For you, I, I'm just intrigued. You, you mentioned curiosity there. I'm wondering, like, when, when your curiosity was fully peaked, where, like, what was that initiation point where you really started down the path doing what you've been doing now for decades? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I've been probably doing what I've been doing since I was 19. Um, I don't think I've ever really done anything else. Even when, I mean, I never had another job. You know, it's not like I, um, even when I had other jobs, like when I was in school, I really, I made it into what I do now. So, for example, um, when I was in school in Boston, I, um, I, I worked as a contractor, as a troubleshooter. I would be sent out to figure out what went wrong in a company like why something had happened that, for example, I worked, I, there was a problem at a bank where a punch, a pension fund had gone missing. They couldn't find the money. And I was sent in to figure out what had happened to it, like, like a detective. And the way I figured it out was I said, what were people thinking? I didn't believe anyone stole the money. I believed people had the wrong idea of where the money should go and they systematically deposited it in the wrong place for decades and that's exactly what had happened so i even then i was trying to figure out what was the operating mental model and how did it get passed down through generations of workers that led to the disappearance of an entire pension fund and what had happened was people mistook the name of the company for a similar company and all the money was in another company's fund. <laughs> so, so what's been the, the key theme, if you were just distilling it down, that, that's, that's tied everything you've done together? Is it about understanding those mental models and how people construct the world and then, and then how you can understand that in, in a business perspective to add more value yes. to the company? Yes. And then in terms of expertise how those mental models become refined and intuitive, how people um, understand domains in a more intuitive and um, first principles way. How do you define mental models? Um, It's a framework with which you use to, um, that you assimilate to your situation and it's a way of clarifying reality for yourself. I'm wondering for you, Oh yeah, please go ahead. Well, like a like a an expert physicist experiences the physical world very differently than we do. 
you know, my partner, my domestic partner, you know, he looks at a bridge and sees a differential equation. And he says, oh, that's a da 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 And I go, looks like a bridge to me, you know, concrete, brick, whatever. But he sees the differential equation that was used to determine its shape and stress and um, how it was constructed. Then, and go ahead. No, no, I'm wondering, how, how do you see the world then? Right? You mentioned that the physicist sees the bridge differently. What do you see so differently? Um, well, it depends. In business, um, I see the organizing forces that are at play in how um, the value is created and how the... I see businesses as a triad. Um, the supply side, which is the operations, the, um, the market, which is what the, which rationalizes the business's existence. Like why, do, why are we here? You know, um, and the capital, uh, the capital strategy, the capital strategy is the hardest. So for example, there's no market for buggy whips or for horse-drawn carriages anymore. So that business doesn't exist because there's no market for it. So there's no reason to have an operational structure for it anymore. So the, anytime that there's no market for something, the business tends to go away. Anytime there's a market for something, an operational structure will emerge to respond to that market. Um, and then there's a capital structure, which is somewhat independent of both of those things which is determined by the larger economy. So right now with stimulus funding and our new administration, the capital of the availability of capital to do interesting things with has a wider, larger structure that, you know, a, a smart CEO will, will use to raise money or not to, um, to, to run their business. Like they may uh, sell stock, they may use debt, whatever. That would be your, your capital strategy for getting funding to run a business. Um, but, the, but when the market is sparse, you have to be very smart about capital and operations. So I see businesses as being those three forces, and I see expertise in business as being able to manipulate that, that game board very well. I'm a fourth generation entrepreneur. Um, and um, double, my, double click on the confidence that comes with that. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I did grow up with grandparents who were very, very successful. Um, and I, I grew up with, um, you know, we, we didn't have like a, like a normal family where, you know, the parents go to work and they come home and they do kid things with the kids. I mean, I worked as a manager in my father's business from the time I was 14 and we always talked about work. And when I visited my grandparents, I went to work. With them. I mean, there was no, there was no bold line between business and other stuff. It's just what you thought about and talked about. It was it was part of life. It was fun. Is that is that one of the keys though? Like you added there at the end, but it was fun. I, I'm just wondering. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I I think it was fun because um, what I learned from my extended family is 
business is um, is not, not. I don't think anybody in my family that was very successful was ever good at working for somebody else. They were all entrepreneurs, I'm and they they had they had a they had a process confidence in doing that and failing at it. I mean, some of my relatives were spectacular failures and got up and did it again and said, well, that was interesting. You know, I mean, they, they didn't particularly um, mind that part of it. It's all part of figuring it out. Yeah. That element of, of curiosity. What, what can you learn from, from this particular thing? You've brought up a few of those mindsets that seem to be like really foundational. Um, I'm just like wondering What's the difference between, let's just call it like a novice versus people that can just like rapidly accelerate their learning? Are, are there fundamental mind sh- uh, mindsets that those accelerated learners just have to have? You know, I don't, you know, I've had a lot of debates about this with other people. Um, I, I don't believe, I believe accelerated learning, the, the capability for it, which is cognitive agility, is in our DNA. And I believe that the stuff that we're trying to do with our technology, future view, which is gamifying um, accelerated learning and accelerating learning through gamification. Actually, the reason it works is because it taps into our primitive DNA. I don't think human beings have biologically evolved in 170,000 years. And the reason that we've survived all these extinction events is because we inherently learn from uh, threatening events. You know, we learn from trial and error and through manipulating our environment and seeing what works. And I think having the chance to do that in a safe way um, and and going in with the idea that we're not going to get fired, we're not going to, you know, do it, break anything important is the way that we all can develop cognitive agility. Just so I make sure the listeners are clear, how do you define cognitive agility? The ability to change your mental model when what you tried is clearly not a fit and you feel comfortable and you you instantly pivot to trying other things. You learn, you, you let the environment teach you that what you're doing is not going to work and you just try something else. You, you flex. Hmm. We uh, all have it when we slip and fall on the ice. Right. <laughs> we don't get up and walk the same way and break the other hip, right? I mean, we we I mean, think about yourself as an athlete, right? We all have that cap- capability to to flex when something isn't working. If we can do that with everything, that's cognitive agility. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, you, you bring up athletics. I'm wondering, have you seen, because you've just worked with thousands and thousands of people who are cognitively agile or have cognitive agility, have you seen people transfer expertise across multiple domains? And if so, is someone who conquers one domain or achieves expertise in that, are they more likely to be able to transfer it over to another? Um, <laughs> it's hard to say. Um, it, uh, certainly business people tend to be agile in business in general, but they may have disastrous personal lives. But but it's hard to say why. It might be because the people that they're with are, at, you know, I mean, um, agility, 
I mean, what does it mean to be agile in your personal life? It might mean, you know, making people put up with that. Um, I, I think people who are incredibly talented in business are not necessarily normal. In other words, there's a price to being that successful and that agile. You, you may not have. One of my clients told me recently, um, he's very, you know, very entrepreneurial, very ambitious. We're building an incredible application of our technology for him. It's a whole new business model that's never been done before. And he said, I, I told my daughter when she wanted me to babysit my grandson, I can't have an ordinary life. I can't do that grandpa thing. You know, I, I need to, like 10 minutes maybe. And then I got to go back to work. I mean, they are like that. They are very intellectually curious, very driven. They really need to um, do their thing all the time. Do you see the, the people who achieved the, the most success with that, they've come to grips with that, right? Like I, I have to imagine a lot of people listening to this are like, wow, the grandfather basically being like, hey, hey grandchild, not going to do this right now. I'm focused on, on business. So I'm just wondering, like, if they come to grips with this. I, I'm thinking about this. Uh, I was talking to William Green. He, he's studied some of the greatest investors of all time. And one, one, all the successes he uncovered, one of the commonalities actually is divorce rates, <laughs> incredibly high in that. And, and so I'm yeah. wondering, like, if they're just like, you know what, this, this is who I am. Actually, my, my greatest passion in life is my business. If those people you see, like, that accelerated trajectory just go up even faster. Uh, yeah. I, I think you have to. I mean, I don't have children. And I I think that I knew um, just from looking at my grandparents, who probably shouldn't have had children, that, um, or or it, it's not that they shouldn't have had children, because if they didn't, I wouldn't exist. Um, they, they, they needed to be more, uh, um, you know, I did, I did very well having, uh, you know, parents and grandchildren who um, were not normal grandparents. I liked it, but not every child can, can adapt to that. No, I appreciate that. And, I, think, I think it's helpful to yeah, yeah under, understand the yeah. context there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I was the only one who visited my paternal grandparents every summer because I was the only one that, that could deal with it. And I might have been the only one of my brothers and sisters that was welcome. They may have said, you know, leave, you know, keep the other ones, take them to, to the amusement park. You know, just send the one that wants to hang out with us and our friends at business. You know, I mean, it could be, you know, when you're a grandparent, you don't have to pretend to be fair, right? So I think that, um, that I think if you know you're like that, you have to be honest with yourself. And my mentor um, in, in graduate school I know she really struggled with it. She was, um, she believed that there were, if you're truly, truly ambitious, you probably should just admit it and not necessarily uh, be a mother. How foundational was it for you to have a mentor? It was pretty important. I mean, I was one of the very first women in my field, uh, and I'm probably the only one still in my exact subfield, um, which is the cognitive science of expertise in business. And um, having two strong role models 
who were not necessarily supportive, but, you know, in the sense of being nurturing, but who, who did their work and survived uh, was probably very important. Plus my grandmothers, you know, were born in the 1800s and were very strong, went to college, were, were successful in their own right. That was very important to see that. Well, I'm thinking about all the lessons you, you've taken from the mentors. You were mentioning this a minute ago of, of some of the things that, that you're building, your companies are building some of the technologies. Um, I, I would love for you just to add a little bit of context around specifically what you guys do. And then I actually want to, want to dive in, into some of the exact details on that. Um, so I would love if you kind of lay out a framework for, for some of the things that you are actually building. Okay. Well, um, my company, WTRI, Workplace Technologies Research, was kind of a spinoff of the Workplace Technologies um, Research Labs, which I had at City University Graduate School. And, um, and I also was doing research when I was teaching at UCSD, which is how I got to California. Um, I was, I was, um, I, I am at heart, I think, a scientist. I think that that's, that's, you know, in my heart and soul, that's who I am. But um, I also realized that to get the data that I needed, I, I really needed to be in businesses. Because I believe that if you're going to look at cognition as it's happening, you really need to go where um, thinking is occurring and having a consequence. And there's no place like that other than businesses and where economic activity is happening very fast and having a consequence. Plus, you know, I obviously understand business. So it was easy for me to do that. Um, and you can just get some, so much data there. So from the very beginning, I was interested in business. And then in the 80s, when I was still in graduate school, um, my mentor, Dr. Sylvia Scribner, who was interested in how cognition shapes or how culture shapes cognition, became interested in how local culture, like the place you work, shapes your cognition. She became very interested with the influx of technology, which was changing workplaces rapidly and dramatically. She was interested in how that could change the picture again. I was much more technically sophisticated than she was, in her opinion. I had had a job at IBM Cognitive Sciences Labs. Um, so I said, I'll do it. You know, I'll go in and look at how technology is changing cognition. And that became my job for her. And then I realized when I was doing that, that um, she kind of looked at how cognition changed um, cognition by the time you're an adult. I don't think she really had conceived of how cognition then keeps changing throughout your life. Um, so she looked at cross-cultural work, how people were different from different cultures, how people who are um, not literate, you know, li literally who don't write things down, had extraordinary memories because they don't, uh, they have to keep everything in their heads. And she's famous for these dairy studies in which people who have to fill um, crates of dairy orders without writing anything down develop extraordinary um, geometric mathematical abilities. 
because they get paid for speed and for limiting the number of crates they use. So they had this incredible ability to mentally simulate objects in space and fit the most amount into the smallest amount of space. Uh, better than PhDs in math. So she, she looked at that. What I looked at was how technology extended cognition, how people added to their cognitive space with technology and meshed with enterprise technologies like ERP systems, cycle-based maintenance systems, and instead of being displaced by them, were empowered by them if they were deployed properly. That was what my dissertation was about. But also how their own mental models and their own levels of expertise and understanding of their own domains were changed by them in a stage-like manner. So we won't get into too much depth there. It gets kind of squirrely. But um, the, um, I did publish that work while I was still in school. And she died uh, while I was still in school. And uh, I took over some of her research while I was finishing my dissertation. So that was a real growth experience, stepping up. Uh, probably being a manager in my father's business prepared me for that. I said, the work is important. It has to get done. I don't care if I'm a student. I'm doing it. And fortunately for me, um, the president of the graduate school said, you know, okay. That he, he supported me. Um, so I was... Um, when I did finish my degree, I got a lot of offers, teaching offers, but I also had started a project at New York City Transit for my dissertation. I used, I did my research in the air brake shop. I, I, I helped them implement an ERP system. And I worked with the frontline workers in the air brake shop, many of whom didn't have high school education. And I got them through gamification to understand how to integrate their tribal knowledge of iron-casted air brakes with modern supply chain technologies. Um, and it was very interesting work because it's, I, I studied how it changed their concepts of time, item, and quantity, literally. Like when I post-tested them, they had a whole different conception of how time works um it, it starts in the future and moves backwards so instead of getting all the stuff they need to make something like in a just-in-case way they wouldn't do it that way anymore they would think about the future goal and get stuff only as they needed it and it saved the property a lot of money but more important for me as a cognitive scientist they were unable to think about it the old way. And they had no memory of thinking about it the way they used to do it. And I would show them videos of themselves, you know, interviewing with me and how they used to do their work. And they'd say, no, we never would have done that. That's a stupid way to do it. That's, I must, I don't know what I was thinking. This old way of thinking was gone. So that really got me started on Maybe we can not only um, elevate expertise, but we can 
replace maladaptive mental models with new ones through reorganization, through gamification. So I moved out to California. I started teaching. I got a call from the head of New York City Transit, and he said, um, you know how you did this project with the air brake maintainers in Coney Island? And I said, yes. And they pulled me out of class. It was amazing. You know, they, some person came down the quad and got me. Of course, you know, the head of New York City Transit is not used to waiting. So it, I was summoned, right? Um, and it was a big deal. All the California secretaries were all upset. I thought maybe somebody in my family died. And um, he just wanted to talk to me. So um, he said, do you remember that? I said, yes, of course I remember. What's up? He said, well, it's a profit center for the whole Northeast. These guys are cranking out air brakes for all the trains, including Amtrak. Wondering if <laughs> you could do it again. I said, well, what are we talking about? He said, ah, 3,000 people, you know, the whole surface transit, you know, all the, all the surface transit. He said the Federal Transit Administration wants us to implement cycle-based scheduled maintenance enterprise technology. We've tried it twice. The workers throw the computers into the Hudson River. We need your help. I said, well, theoretically, it should work. So let's give it a shot. So for about a year and a half, I flew back and forth between two coasts, and we did it. It was the first six. I mean, I hired 40 people. But the point is that it was the first successful implementation of cycle-based schedule maintenance in the history of public transportation at the time. How old were you at the time of that? How old was I? Yeah, I'm just curious. Oh, I was in my early 30s. I mean, it's just impressive. I, I just didn't know if you if you were in your early 20s at that stage or or how, well, how many years experience just out you had. Of, yeah, yeah, no, I, I had no years of experience. <laughs> I just figured, well, you know, as you say, I have no children. I, you know, it's only me if I fail. So what? Let's give it a shot. Did you actually have any, I don't call them major failures because the project overall was a success, but any actually like failures throughout that time? Because it, it, it seems like you've done like a, a, a pretty good job, um, not not having these massive blowups throughout your career. Um, no, we've had failures. I mean, um, they're they're mostly, um, I would say, controlled explosions. I mean, we've had <laughs> good some way, good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've had some really bad partnerships. Um, you know, we we've tried to. Um, so, you know, we've, we've had, uh, um, nothing, you know, nothing devastating, you know, like in other words, we, we sell our platform through partners around the world. And sometimes those partnerships don't work out. And, um, there's no question that people have tried to steal my technology many times. We've tried to help them just to see what would happen. <laughs> And it's never worked out. And sometimes it's gotten ugly. Can you, can and, you, yeah, can you just describe what the, what the platform is? Okay. So what the platform is, is that we've, we've actually gotten quite a bit of National Science Foundation and NASA funding 
to figure out why what we do works. Like what, what is it that happens that accelerates learning? And how is our, what's our deployment model for technology that, that um, extends people's cognitive capability? So we've cracked that code and we've actually published work about it. And we think that what, what's going on is that people have a particular idea of how things work. Let's take a business person. They have a sort of theory of how to be successful and they apply it to a situation and it's inappropriate for the time. Like the world has changed and that isn't going to work anymore. So an example that I try, that I like to use is my, one of my grandfathers was a very successful um, manufacturing mogul. And he was successful after World War II because he was very good at getting lots of material. He had all of this, all, he really, he really, um, he really managed the supply side very well. He had everything you need to be successful at making a lot of stuff. Nowadays, that would be too expensive. Now you're better off not having a lot of stuff in inventory uh, and paying taxes on that and paying um, for inventory, building, storage, etc. cetera. Um, but after World War II, when there wasn't anything, having, having it, meant that you won the game. He couldn't adjust to the just-in-time model when it became popular. Fortunately, he was old by then. He had a lot of money. He didn't need to adjust. Um, but his company didn't survive. So he thought that having, all, having as much inventory as possible was always going to be the way to win. Um, what... what I've learned through the years is that people need the ability to iteratively try their mental model, no matter what it is, and find out what's not working about it, because it's probably only 10% of their working mental model that's inappropriate, that's causing them to fail. So, uh, and that, that the reason that most incredibly successful and incredibly agile people are the way they are is because they've had the opportunity to fail catastrophically or have controlled explosions, a series of them, and refine their model to fit almost any situation. So we, we've decoded that there, you probably need about 60 decision cycles to get to that point. And we created a platform where for any large problem, we give you the degrees of freedom to have 60 decision cycles in any direction, uh, no matter what your entry point into the problem is, to figure out where the holes are in your model. So, so with these digital platforms, it would, it would almost be like a video game, right? Like a company could come in and they could play out these, these games, these simulations where they could quickly learn how their models are flawed, correct? Yeah, yes. So it would be a model of your business. So a, one of the big uh, areas that we work in a lot is mining. So if you go on our website, um, thefutureviewplatform.com, you'll see a flyover of a huge mine. And that would be one of our customers' mines. And they can, um, they can actually, um, we can, using LIDAR and, and engineering wireframes, we can make their mining operation 
And with our platform, we can actually attach all through APIs. We can put in all of the um, enterprise technologies that they want to try. And using an engineering uh, wireframe, we can make the mine out to how they plan it to be in 2030. And we can say, okay, before you spend $1.2 billion, let's see if that's going to work. It never does, by the way, what they, what they think is going to work. But they get to iteratively try all the stuff in compressed time that they think will work. And they say, oh, I see what you mean. Like the road is too far from the port. Um, the, you know, just, just in fuel alone, we've added so much to the lifting cost of the gold that we're never going to make any money per ounce. You know, they, they get to see all that in 3D. So our platforms, just for mining alone, are for problems that are too big to think about any other way except 3D. And then you can attach all of those technologies that you need to explore. That's what the platform does. It's very powerful. It has a huge back end. Um, you can, and we've worked with insurance companies, mining, manufacturing, and you can visually see and log in and walk around and experience what would happen when your plan hits the road, rubber hits the road. First off, that is just so freaking cool. Uh, I absolutely love that. I, I just love what, what you guys have been able to build. And, and something that reminds me of, of how this conversation started is, is you saying uh, you need these 60 um, decision cycles and it never works out the way they thought it was going to. Yeah. B- back to your mindset in the beginning, right? Like there's always something you don't know. And right. I, I have to imagine a lot, a lot of these, I'm assuming a lot of these moguls come in, arrogance is probably extremely high. What is it like when they, when they finally start playing with this and realize what, what they, their arrogance thought was it was going to be correct? They, they realize there, there's flaws there. You know, um, at the beginning, they, um, they think they're going to be the, the one in my whole career. Still hasn't been one, though? Out people that, that's going people that's going to nail it the first time, right? And then they start playing, and they, 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 it's like we're not even there. They're in the zone and they, they're completely, um, it's like they're in the Zen of exploring the world. It's like, we're not even there. And they're, um, they're one with the problem. Is that almost, uh, a metric that you can actually like when, when someone can fully immerse themselves into that, the problem, I'm just wondering if you kind of see a difference, right? Like the people who, who do the best with this are fully immersed and the people who, whose businesses long-term don't do that well, they, they have difficulty getting that deep into it? Um, you know, it, I think that's kind of up to us. I think that's the one thing that, that people have tried to steal from us that they haven't been able to, which is it's all in the way we design the world. Gotcha. Um, we, we've, we've gotten really good at designing the world, so it sucks people in. We haven't really had somebody who, who doesn't engage. Once they're in there, um, we've even put EEGs on people while they're playing our games, and we get total brain engagement. And we've put EEGs on people who play a normal educational game, and there's not total brain engagement. So there's something that we've learned through the years where we've learned to design the world 
remember what I said in the beginning where we really live in our own heads? Mm-hmm. We construct a, a simulation in our own minds. Um, that's what we enable people to do, except that we're controlling what they construct. Any chance you've, you've published any of the research around the, the EEGs? Not yet, no. <laughs> you, you, don't, you, you don't publish enough. Obviously, you're, you're building all these massive businesses. You know, you, I, I mean, everybody says that, um, including Gary Klein. Um, but no, I, I have not published that. I mean, I think we published a paper for a client. But, but um, yeah, we get, we get what we look for on the EEG is the motor cortex, the right brain, lots of alpha waves. Then we know that the, the world is working for that. And it's more on us. It's more the world has enough to it. And um, what we're trying to do is, you know, when you're, when you're going about your life, you have so much history and so much past that's operating to help you decide what to focus on. And you're always learning. You're always assimilating your past to whatever happens to you. Like right now right? You're, you're assimilating your past to the situation and trying to apprehend what I'm saying in terms of that. What we do with a virtual world is we, we control a little bit that, that process uh, because we focus the attention of your adaptive unconscious the way we want it to go. So our virtual worlds actually have a lot less going on than the real world but your brain doesn't experience it that way. It experiences it as a rich, entire world. Just like a movie. Just like a great movie, right? A great movie feels like everything at the time. But it's actually, compared to the real world, just very minimal. And that's the illusion that we want to create. And then we've got them. And then we can manipulate them to make those 60 decision cycles the way we want to get them to a new level of thinking that's better for them. Believe me, I, I want to dive more into the brain and the adaptive <laughs> and the adaptive unconscious. So don't worry. Well, let's let's put a placeholder there. I'm actually really intrigued about the 60 decision cycles. When you think of a decision cycle, I, I know you're, you're immersed in this stuff every single day. Decision cycles? Do they have certain time constraints? Like I, I'm just wondering what a decision cycle looks like. A decision cycle can be very minimal. Um, it's all about agency. The, the thing that's wrong with a lot of online learning is it's too passive. I don't know if you have much of a background in psychology or cognitive science, but there were some studies done many years ago with kittens, right? And th- what they did was they took these little kittens. Kittens have, cats have extraordinary object permanence. That's what makes them good hunters. Like uh, a human baby, um, if you, uh, even a baby, a human baby that's, sitting up if you move a toy behind the couch the baby doesn't know that the toy is still there it assumes that the toy is gone it can't out of sight out of mind that's why the expression comes up um uh it's like taking candy from a baby when when you take something from a baby and hide it it doesn't know that it's not completely disappeared gone um, you you have to develop the capability to realize that that um, that because you've taken it, it's still somewhere. That for us, that comes a little late in our development. 
it's called object permanence. And I think in human beings, it's pretty late, like six or eight months. Um, in kittens, because they're hunters, cats are hunters, it comes very early, like within the first week or two of life. And that's why cats are such superior hunters. They know almost from birth that something that's disappeared behind another object, they know to look behind that object. So these experimenters wanted to see how, how it develops in kittens. And it actually develops in kittens the same way it develops in us, but much faster. So they took these kittens that were very small and they put them in these little chariots. And they were pulled around life by their brothers and sisters. So their brothers and sisters ran around and played. And their siblings were, were, were not running around and playing. They were being pulled around by their brothers and sisters and watching what was happening, but not having any control over what happened. Those kittens did not develop object permanence. That the only way you develop object permanence or learn as a kitten is having agency manipulating the world and controlling it, doing things and seeing what will happen. We're very similar. And a lot of learning does not, does not acknowledge that. It, we have passive content, but we really only learn by manipulating and interacting with the content, doing something to it and seeing what will happen. It's in our DNA. It's in the most primitive part of our adaptive unconscious which learns much faster than our conscious awareness, which is a much later evolutionary um, development and much less efficient. Yeah, any, any idea the, the efficiency there? How much quicker you can learn with that? Uh, according to Weg, Wegner, our adaptive unconscious uh, learns 200,000 times faster than our uh, conscious awareness and has much greater capacity. So, so assuming if this is our approach, let's call it to practice, then Anders Ericsson, um, the 10,000 hours, did that essentially get debunked there? In- oh, yeah. No, the 10,000 hours, we just ignore that. We, we do that in six hours. You said six hours, right? Yeah, for, for a bounded domain. Not, you know, you're not going to become Hemingway in six hours, but you could become an agile manager in, in six hours. You know, not chronolog- not not all at once, but six hours of gameplay over a period of a couple of days. So I guess like a, a big takeaway right away is anyone who wants to increase their learning ability, you, you'd rather, instead of spending 100 passive hours, you'd rather have five hours of just extremely fully immersed in intense practice, correct? Yeah. That, that's, you know, think about some of the no, new, more effective learning modalities like fully immersive language learning. That's all that is. Yeah. I, I know you, you set a, a structure kind of a, around five different things when you're creating these. And, and please tell me if, I, if I'm wrong in any of this. But the first is creating one of those non-negotiable goals th- throughout the practice. Another one is just yeah. minimal. And we're, believe me, we're going to dive into these. Minimal or little to no instruction whatsoever. And then you obviously use stress and time compression, often like to the extreme degree. And then yeah. there's the opportunity, like you were, we were just talking about, those many rapid cycles and then clear mm-hmm. feedback. Um, yeah. I, I just want to set that the, those five step, and then I, I want to dive into some of these. So we, we obviously talking about how that ten thousand hours gets debunked, um, and talking about rapid iteration. Um, let, let's talk a little, just a little bit more though about that 
rapid iteration. So when you guys were first setting all this up, you really thought about that adaptive unconscious and how to, to tap into that to condense these learning cycles? Um, you know, when in the old days, we, we were like everybody else. We wanted to have teaching moments, right? We wanted to do reflective abstraction and have people understand what they were learning. And then we realized it just slowed people down and it, we got it. We were in their way. And then we backed off. Um, so we, even we had to learn that the adaptive unconscious really needs to be let go. We, people really need to be set free from their conscious awareness in a way. Um, and we really need to, uh, set, set them loose in our games. This makes me think I might be completely wrong. Are you at all familiar with the book, The Inner Game of Tennis by Tim Galway? I've heard of it. But it, it, it sounds very, yeah. It sounds it very sounds similar. Like yeah, there, yeah, there's this video. I don't know. It was from 60 minutes, like 30 years ago, where he teaches someone who's never touched a tennis racket in about 20 minutes. Same thing, right? Like you, you've got to you got to escape. You got you got to let them kind of forget or not not even tap into that. And it seems like a lot of the work that that he he does or, or writes about might be similar here. Um, yeah. But I w- I want to dive into some of those five things. And the first one is this non-negotiable goal. And I'm just wondering. What, what is the importance of that and how do you define those non-negotiable goals? Well, this is a very, um, this is a layperson way to put it. Um, uh, don't, at, don't worry, that works great for me. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, the adaptive unconscious is, is all about survival and it, it's very binary. It believes that um, you're either going to survive or you're not going to survive. It's very primitive. And that everything you're learning is... Um, going to help you adapt for survival so remember we have not evolved in 170,000 years we're we're not moving up in the evolutionary chain biologically we only we we have uh as an organism we we just have learned to learn right and we we've always been that way we just have a culture now that gives us more to work with but our adaptive unconscious, when we are wrong, um, we see it as a potential extinction event or something that we can't survive. I mean, think about how you feel when somebody insults you or you're lost, you know, and your GPS is wrong. I mean, it's, it causes a lot of anxiety. And yet you've never died in any of those situations, but you still feel very threatened. That's your adaptive unconscious. Um, we uh, overreact at the adaptive unconscious level to anything that doesn't, uh, is something that we're not prepared for. So we take advantage of that in a way. Um, and we say that you do have the answer. You just have to try something else. So, and, and we also make our virtual worlds or our games kind of fun and a little bit cute to because we don't want to activate any part of the brain like the amygdala, which would shut down learning. We don't want to create a panic response. So, um, but when you are disequilibrated through some sort of lack of fit, you do experience it as an anxiety-provoking, I'm not going to survive event. And your brain automatically starts looking for another solution, but always in terms of a goal. Now, if it's random survival, 
uh, things can get pretty chaotic. So it, when you give the person a goal, like in a game, um, which is why sports is so much fun, right? Because the goal is clear. It gives you something to organize all your activity and all your learning around. Um, and that makes the whole thing a lot more meaningful and a lot more fun. It's the same in business. When we give people a non-negotiable goal, which could be a stock price, it could be a return on sales, it could be all kinds of things like that. It could be several things, and they could be vertically integrated. So in one of our games, you have to be a very you have to be a servant leader, and you get scored on your on your emotional behavior and the way you treat people. Every decision you make, every interaction you have, you get scored on how you did it. But you also get scored on every business decision you make in terms of return on sales and your profits. At the same time, every decision has two consequences and you've always got your eye on both those things. This is extremely powerful in modeling people's behavior. Yeah. And people adapt to that right away. You mentioned not trying to upset the amygdala too much. I'm wondering then, how, it's like, how do you balance in the, the time compression and the stress elements to the extreme? What, what does that you, look like? Um, you give people a way to win, and you give them multiple ways to win. So you never give people um, um, – the best games are ones where you can win and then go back and win again even better. Um, but you don't, you can also lose. So people always play our games more than once and, um, they, um, understand why they lost when they lost. And, uh, you know, the feedback is very good. The clear feedback is, is the key. I'm wondering, have you guys come across anything around too much stress? Are, are there any like second and third order consequences with, if there's an element of too um, much? Probably, but we, by now, we, we, we know what to do. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, just because you were kind of talking about like that survival instinct, have you actually, has any of your research uncovered ways that we could actually improve survival rates in life and death type scenarios? Rehearse. I mean, you know, one of the anecdotal things we've heard is um, we're, we're developing a, a, an anxiety treatment product right now. Um, and the reason we're doing it is because a lot of people who've gone through our business games have reported that even though we weren't trying to do this, people handle stress and anxiety better because of our games. And we think it's because um, of two things. Virtual worlds in general have been shown to help people manage anxiety and stress because they get to practice stressful situations in a safe way. But people who worked with us have told us that being able to win at these games, which for them are difficult situations that impact their, their jobs, um, has shown them that they, can, they have the power to solve difficult problems. And that um, if they had an application that showed them that they had the power to solve other difficult problems in their lives, they would really appreciate that. So we said, okay, we'll try that, you know. Um, but 
I think that that's a message from the marketplace that people want a way to gamify and rehearse difficult problems in order to not only develop the skill to overcome difficult situations, but show themselves that I do have the capability to learn how to do this. Any idea when, when that'll be coming to the market? Well, we have a, we applied for a national science foundation grant to develop it. Um, and we wanted that because we wanted to make sure that the funding to develop it was not um, mixed with um, investor funding that we have for the platform because we, we want the science to be pure. Um, and we, we have, we are in the final stages of due diligence for that, for that grant. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I know even like in your research, one of the things you saw, you showed is that teams perform much better than individuals. One of the large things is because that stress, fear, that anxiety, uh, that, yeah. that comes out in that those individuals. And once they get over that hump, like you were talking about that, this plays out in other, other parts of their life as well. So that's, that's, yeah. I mean, I think we, we all know people who are just like extremely handcuffed because of stress, yeah. fear, anxiety. So that, that, that's just like really excited to hear about. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any, anything else along the lines of like mental health um, that, you, that you guys are just like early on to or just starting to uncover? Well, um, I do I do think that there is a lot of um, there is a place for what one of the things I'm excited about is that there is an opportunity with the platform uh, to democratize accelerated learning. I think everybody has the capability to learn and to learn fast and to learn over and over again, difficult skills and to increase their cognitive agility. And I, I, I hope that if we are successful in, um, in scaling the platform, that it will be available to lots of people who want to do that. People, people are very anxious about being able to keep up at work. I wonder, just thinking as a CEO, how do, how do you think about like the actual scaling of the platform? Um, well, we do have an investor. We, we, WTRI is a research company. We did spin off our platform into another company called Applied Cognitive Sciences Labs. And that company just is for the platform. And we, we did that a little over a year ago. Uh, to attract investors, because we realized no investor is going to invest in a research company. Um, and no investor is going to invest in in us as personalities. You know, people want to work with us because we're well known. Um, but they will invest in the platform if it's scalable. So we started playing around with that. Talk about, you know, looking at things a new way, right? Um, so we said, let's, let's see if we're wrong about the way we're doing things. Let's see if the, if putting the platform by itself would attract an investor. And we, we heard from people right away. And so we're now in the, in the final stages really of due diligence with a couple investors and they probably will invest by the end of the year and put in their own team. And they, they want to grow the company to be quite large. Very exciting. Uh, seem, it seems like you've got a lot going on, which, which I know it yeah. stimulates that intellectual curiosity. But yeah. I, I definitely want to dive back into the, the adaptive unconscious. And something okay. that, that you brought up uh, a little while ago is just the tapping really into that right hemisphere. And I would just love to think or hear about your thinking around the left and right hemisphere of the brain 
and, and what do most people not understand, but you're becoming more attuned to? Uh, the well, um, I, I mean, I don't know if there really is, um, you know, I, I had a brain scan when I was working at Harvard for Dr. Chris, you know, way back in the, in my youth. And, um, the, you know, I, I actually read with my, with my right brain and I don't know why, cause I'm right-handed, but, um, you know, and everybody who worked for her had to have a brain scan. It was just, you know, part of the job. We had to clean the toilet and get a brain scan. So, um, <laughs> you know, and make her coffee. Um, so the, the idea is, um, but, but what they are metaphors for is linear processing and spatial processing. And I do think that, um, there are different ways that we process information and that, um, in different, in different people, it's done differently. Right. And the idea is that, um, and certainly the language that you speak as a mother tongue definitely also affects the shape of your brain and also whether or not you're an athlete, I think. I think athletes have very different brains than non-athletes. In which ways? Well, you have to have a lot more control over your body and your brain is probably not just in your head. Your whole neural system is probably got memory to it. You know, I don't know what sports you play, but um, you probably have a more integrated nervous system. Yeah, I, I played lacrosse, so a lot of hand-eye coordination. I, I definitely know what you mean with like that, yeah. that immersive full-body feel on things. Yeah. So I'm sure you've seen those people who lose um, lose an arm, and they're able with their thoughts to manipulate a robotic arm across the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's because they have, you know, they, they connect a, um, a, a a sort of electronic sensor either to their armpit or to something in their head. Um, your, your brain is not just in your head. It's your whole nervous system. And for some of us, it's mostly in our heads because we're not very athletic. And for some of us, it's kind of more distributed. And I think that um, that what we really want to do is get the whole brain to work. And I think one way to do that is, is to use 3d platforms and get away from only symbolic processing, like with two dimensional and linguistic forms of cognitive aids. I think using 3d platforms like ours, uh, we're actually returning back to our, our, DNA. We, we think with the aid of tools. Can, can you talk more of that, about that? Clearly you've done a lot of work in, in terms of like our actual like DNA. And you mentioned we, uh-huh. we haven't really changed in 170,000 years. I'm just wondering how you think about that. Because what's just like such common knowledge to you might not be to a lot of other people. Oh, okay. Well, I, I think essentially human beings are tool users. You know, we don't just use tools. We are tool users the essence of us is that we're tool users and we're transformed by using tools. That's the difference between us now and us uh, in the caves is the tools that we use. We have an iPhone, we have computers and we, we instantly pick up tools, use them and are changed by them. My father's in his nineties and he uses a, a smartphone 
you know, he doesn't need to be taught how to do that. He just picks it up, explores it, figures it out. And that's what human beings do. Um, we, we, uh, we, and what I look at whenever, you know, you ask me what I see that's different from other people. Whenever I see people interacting with their environment, I don't see a person using a tool. I see the user tool activity system between mm. them. And I think that what we're always trying to do is engineer the activity system. And that what people who, you know, what tool makers and technologists are doing wrong is they try to make cool tools and technologies. And that's not the way to go. What they try to do is engineer the activity system between people and technologies. So whenever we make a technology, we start with users. And we make it with the user. We never make something and then go test it on the users. Never works. It's like making a mine, right? That's, it's like you don't design a mine and then build it. You always build it in the virtual world first and have people go in and try it and see if they die underground, which they usually do. So the idea is um, that you're always engineering, I guess, a mind's the same way, a user tool activity system. That's, that's what it is to be human. Hmm. None of that makes perfect sense. I, I appreciate you expanding on that. Is there anything else in, in terms of neuroscience? This might be like really early on that's just kind of like catching your attention uh, and, and you're starting to explore further. Well, I think that's why we're so attracted to making ourselves bionic. Like, I want to get my lenses changed. I don't have cataracts yet, but I want to fake that I do so I can get <laughs> new lenses, you know. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we're much more comfortable with being bionic because we are user tool activity systems. Um, you know, my doctor said to me um, something about, you know, it's, it's natural to get old, right? And she's sort of trying to get me to, to, to accept that eventually I'll get old. I said, you know, most women before 1850 or 1900 died by the time they were 50. It's not natural to get old. It's, it's natural to die. For, it's only recently that anybody lived as long as we do now. So it, I think that, um, that we are, we're kind of in new territory with, with living this long, being intelligent this long, etc. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, no, I'm, I, I'm uh, honestly, I'm just really intrigued about like what you're thinking yeah. about. So you, you could have said anything. Well, I guess I should, I guess I should clarify that. So we, we always thought that the brain um, gets to a certain point and then cells start dying off. You know, your brain grows to a certain point and then the cells start dying off. I think it's at age 20 or something. We now know that's not true. We now know that you actually add cells to your brain all your life, just like the rest of your body. And that you're, 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 you're replacing brain cells and neurons your whole life, as long as you keep your brain active. And nobody knew that, I think, until the 1990s. 
yeah, it's pretty crazy to think about, right? Right. Once when school's done, that that was it. Your learning was done. You, you stay yeah. in the same exact job. Um, yeah. For me, I feel like that's an extremely empowering understanding. Um, yeah. That we can continue yeah. to develop that throughout lives. Yeah. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, who's one of the most powerful people in our country, is 80. 70 years ago, that person would be dead. Yeah. And a man. And um, Warren Buffett, who's, you know, anytime you see Warren Buffett in the news, you go, my God, what did he say? Should I sell my stock? You know, he's 90 and he's still somebody that we listen to and read his column every day. And he's 90 and nobody's saying, oh, my God, he's too old to be doing this. Yeah, him and his you know, uh, yeah, him and his partner Charlie Munger. I think Munger's ninety eight, yeah. Buffett's like ninety six, yeah. and they they were and the, they were up there on stage for four hours uh, what a month ago, just just talking. And people are hanging on every yeah. word. <laughs> what should we do, right? <laughs> and um, this has never happened before. And it and and um, I'll tell you a funny story. My father's my father is um, is in his nineties, but books about maybe sixty five. We we don't. You know, my family's very long-lived. And even even before people were long-lived, his mother was over 100, his aunt was 104, etc. And he had counted on dying at a young age. So he goes, I take him to the doctor, and his doctor says, well, the only thing wrong with you is uh, we're going to replace your heart valve. Simple operation, you'll be in and out of the hospital in a couple of days. And he goes, no, 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 we're not going to replace my heart valve. I'm not going to have heart surgery. And his doctor says, well, why not? He says, well, because I'm going to die. I'm too old. And his doctor says, well, what are you going to die of? Because we're not seeing it. And my father literally stared at him and said, well, I'm I'm old. (laughs) You don't have diabetes. You don't have you know, he lists all the things. You look about 67. He said, "What do you know something we don't know? Because we're not seeing it. So my father had surgery. <laughs> and, but he was literally speechless. Like, like it never occurred to him that, that he could live another 15 years. Yeah, no, I, I I love the the place we're at right now. It's really remarkable. Um, yeah. I, I know we're going to round this out here uh, in a few minutes. I, I am really intrigued, though. Uh, you mentioned uh, condensing those those learning windows um, in bound domains. Well, I'm- okay, so so I should qualify that. The reason that the sixty cycles can can compress learning is because your brain does not really have a sense of time. It has a sense of cycles. Think about yourself as a child. If you ever read the work of Catherine Nelson, she kind of proved that we're not born with a sense of chronological time. We acquire that through language. Children only have a sense of now and not now. And, you know, the past and the future for children is the same. So the idea of a timeline is learned. Chronological time. The brain actually only has a sense of cycles, and the adaptive unconscious definitely has no sense 
of a chronological timeline. So what we're doing is we're, we're taking advantage of that. And we're saying, well, the reason people become experts is because they have more events that, have, that, that are exemplars that they've learned from. If we can compress the exemplars into a shorter amount of time so they don't have to wait 10,000 hours, then maybe we can get the same effect. And that's what I was doing with my dissertation. No. I was compressing the cycles and getting the same effect. And what's really interesting to me is that once I got the cycles, um, the prior way of thinking was gone. Now, that may not happen uh, with somebody who's more self-aware. I mean, these workers were not particularly interested in having self-knowledge. Um, I think that's another thing that people develop or not. I actually don't think I have a lot of self-knowledge, honestly. Um, but um, self-knowledge is, is, a, is an acquisition. Um, but people don't necessarily have to have it and don't necessarily have it. Um, but these workers, when I went back and interviewed them, they had no memory of ever thinking the way they used to. So not only were they more expert, but their novice state was missing, just erased. Hmm. Yeah. So another, another example that I used when I used to be a uh, professor was I would write on the board to illustrate this. I would write on the board some phrase and I'd say to my students, look at the board and don't read that. And they couldn't do it. So once you get to a certain stage of expertise, you can't undo it. How do you, how do you think about this? Say it would be for something like um, a sport or even say you want to become a chef. How, how do you think all of this plays into that? And which way are we approaching development in those that, that might be flawed? Um, well, sports is difficult because you have to have the physical um, equipment, right, to be good at a sport, I assume. Yeah, well, let's even just use chess. Chess is a better one, right? Chess is a better candidate because it's a closed system. Right? It's, a, it's very similar to business. It's a closed system with a set number of pieces, and it's, it's what we would call bounded, so you can become good at it. Uh, my partner and I are very good at gambling. We win a lot of money. What's your game? Blackjack and, and a couple others, poker. The reason that we're good at it is because um, gambling is a closed system. Right, it's 52 cards close set of rules and if you understand at a first principles level that it's not about luck it's about the probabilities within that closed system you can actually win a lot of money it's not you know but you have to be careful and you have to be very disciplined it's the same with chess um, sports is a little bit more open-ended you have to be strong enough you have to be flexible enough etc you know. I, I know you're out there in San Diego. Have, have you come across at all Ed Thorpe, the legendary investor who uh, 
who learned how to be who learned how to beat uh, the blackjack table back in like the sixties or seventies. I've heard about him. Yeah, yeah, I know he's out he there uses, in La Jolla. <laughs> yeah, he's he's some, he uses a different method than we do. Um, we use the variable bet method, which is a little bit more efficient. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, but, but we came up with it ourselves. He counts cards more than we do. We it, it, his is very labor intensive. Ours is more um, like it's sort of like flipping a coin. If you flip a coin ten times. It, it, you know, the chances of you getting, if you flip it once, you get heads. If you flip it again and you get heads, the chances of you getting heads the third time is less, right? It's a pattern. It's the same with blackjack. Um, the, the more you get a bad hand, the, the more likely you'll get a good hand after a series of bad hands because of the, of the distribution of the cards, in the deck. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, um, eventually the, you have to get a good hand, you know, you can, you don't have to count the cards. You just have to get the probabilities and then you bet more on that hand, the one that you think is going to be a good hand, and you bet low when it's going to be a bad. Casinos have, uh, your picture up there. They, they know, they, they know when Leah comes you know, we, we have, we have gotten into some dicey situations, especially when we were explaining to other people at the table, why we were winning. Then we got escorted out. Yeah. But we don't do that anymore. So. Well, well I, I've certainly wasted um, enough of your time here. I'm going to round this out with, with two ones. Um, uh, I, I know you're just like a, a voracious, curious person. Um, are there any books or different things you've come across over the years that, that really just piqued your interest you thought were fascinating? Just about everything Gary Klein does. And um, I really enjoy, and you know, I've known Gary and I have known each other so long. We don't remember how we met, which is sad. I mean, we were trying to remember how we met uh, the last time we saw each other in person. And we, neither of us could remember, but, Every time we have a conversation, we complete each other's sentences and we don't agree on everything, but we have great debates and I really enjoy everything he writes. And um, probably because we don't agree on everything. And um, I also really would recommend reading all of the great philosophers. Uh, Sartre, uh, Ernst Cassirer, uh, Heidegger, they were all huge influences on me because they um, really showed me how people construct meaning. Mm -hmm. And it, it's the start of, of really psychology and cognitive science. Yeah. Uh, and um, particularly Ernst Cassirer. Great. I've actually ne never dove into him, uh, so I'll have to now. So I'm wondering if you could do this long-form conversation uh, with someone dead or alive, who would you love to just have like a deep dive sit down with? Um, I would love to talk to Piaget, um, Jean Piaget, the father of genetic epistemology, and Vygotsky, Lev Vygotsky. They were contemporaries, and they both had a big influence on my work. Um. Vygotsky died in Stalinist Russia at an early age. And his work was rediscovered in the 80s and translated by Norris Minnick and dominates a lot of our um, math education now, although a lot of people don't realize that. 
Um, and Piaget uh, dominates a lot of early childhood education, but that wasn't his main contribution. His main contribution was actually his understanding of how um, of, of neuroscience really, the functional invariance is what his contribution was. And how um, he didn't know it at the time, he didn't call it that, but if you do research on the functional invariance in Piaget's theory, it's really a model of neuroscience. That's very important. Things I, had, you, I did not know, so I, I love this. Yeah. And um, Vygotsky's model of um, dialectical, the learning of scientific concepts through dialectical um, exploration, language and thought, his book, um, actually, Language and Speech, is, it was rewritten as Language and Speech, is a good way to understand the development of expertise. Again, not his topic, but really, that's what he was really talking about, looking through it from today's lens. Fantastic. And cognitive flexibility, yeah. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Leah, this, yeah. is, this has been so much fun. I appreciate you so much di- diving into so much of your work, um, what you bring to fruition, everything like that. Where can we direct the listeners? Where can they stay up to date with everything that you've been doing and, and what you have going on? I, I know you have a lot going on. So, Well, we have two websites. You know, WTRI.com is our research company. We're still there. We're still doing research. Um, and our platform company is FutureView platform.com and that's where they can see what we're doing with our technology and our partners and what they're doing around the world with our technology um and those are the two main places and obviously i post on linkedin a lot fantastic well leah DeBello, i cannot thank you enough for joining us on what got you there? well thank you thank you for the conversation i really i really have fun You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.